back to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that always finds itself just cackling, totally ear-to-ear grin, wide-mouthed, just breaking out laughing, at every imaginable horror and tragedy of this fragile earth, every single tragic circumstance, Amanda, we meet just just laughing, jokered, jokered up. Oh yeah, that's, that's the only way to survive, right, in this terrible, terrible world. I think that we all get through how we can. Each person finds his or her method, but that is a ver- solution. <laughs> That's a version. <laughs> what was the last catastrophe that you laughed at? Would you like to share that openly with the public? Mm, I don't think that I would know because with tragedies, I don't tend to laugh. So, <laughs> Right. Well, we all know what circus you'd be a part of. Or carna- Carnival? What's carnival, the yeah. Carnival, yeah. there we go. If I'd you be the no- witch. Yeah, yeah, well, we all know your fate. <laughs> your fate was sealed. Uh, spoiler. If you have no idea why we're talking about witches or carnivals or laughing at tragedy, that is because you have stumbled upon a book club episode, specifically a part two book club for the novel Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury. As I mentioned, this is a part two episode of the Lightly Literary Podcast. We are a book club podcast. Joining me as always is Amanda, my co-host. Hey, Amanda. Hello. Welcome back, and a, a smile, a wide grin to you, even though hopefully this night will not end in tragedy. <laughs> that's, that's always the aspiration. We do have social media accounts. We always appreciate it if you follow us. We have a Facebook and Instagram accounts that are active, and dare I say it, nearly caught up with the schedule posting. I'm, th- I'm, gonna, I'm threatening, Amanda. It's close. <laughs> I have I'm not s- done anything with my Instagram for the podcast like in... And to think, and the great shame with you, Amanda, is that your life isn't busy. You have nothing going on, no developments, nothing important. Mm -hmm. God, that's the real shame. Just, just (laughs) shameful. (laughs) But I'm I'm threatening. (laughs) I'm currently staring at a drawing and a half that's going to get us almost. Oh man, I'm so close. Anyway, this is a tangent at this point. But we do have social media accounts you can follow: Facebook and Instagram. We're at the Lightly Literary Podcast, all one word. So we do appreciate a follow there. Wherever you found this podcast, we appreciate a a rating, a like, subscribe. Subscribe to a service, I suppose. You know, give us a five star rating if you can, if you're able. We appreciate it. Let's dive into some spoilers. We will be discussing today the second half of Ray Bradbury's novel. Again, something this something wicked, sorry, this way comes. At this point, we'll be spoiling the entire book. Our book club episodes are analytical. They're meant to be deep dives and discussions of every element of the story. And at this point, we'll be discussing the whole thing since we have finished it. So that's kind of the final warning for spoilers. Anything to say up front, Amanda, before we dig in? No, I'm ready. Okay, she's ready, I'm ready. I've got my grin on, and we can ward off some evil with it. So let's get to it. We'll start with the first segment of our Part 2 Book Clubs, which is highs and lows. It's exactly what it sounds like. We're each going to discuss things we thought were high points or low points in the back half of the story. Amanda, why don't you set us up with a high or a low? I guess, do you have more? You've got two of each, right? Equal parts? I did do two of each. Okay. <laughs> a little bit of a little bit of balance between good and evil, as befits yeah. the themes. <laughs> um, go ahead and start us off with a high or a low. Your pick. Um, I'll just go ahead and get the low out of the way. Um, one of the lows that I picked up on was Charles Halloway's super long rants. So that's Will's dad. Yeah. The uh, the kind of knight in shining armor there at the end. Um, his speeches to the boys are like maybe supposed to be the heart of the philosophy of the book, and maybe even. Um, the heart of like what what was like important to Bradbury be conveyed, but 
And, and I think that the theme really begins to glimmer in these really long paragraphs. Uh, oh my gosh, I had to reread some of those sentences several times to to get it through mm-hmm. my yeah. head. And it's such a change from the rest of the novel that it's almost jarring because you're just like snapping along with this plot and like really snappy sentences. And then you get to the one like in the library and he's pontificating on like good and evil and, and what it means to to yeah. to feed on the um, the sorrows of people and stuff. And I'm just like, whoa, this is a completely different read. It was just so different from everything else. I, I felt like I was yeah. reading Foucault at some point. <laughs> so I was just like, man, I got to reread this sentence will, like three times. I will not give him nearly that much credit. I found it much <laughs> easier to read than that. But I understand. I completely agree. It was also my low. My only clear low for the second half was it's yeah. speechifying. The, here's yeah. the a couple odd things about it. One, isn't this the Bradbury of, of Fahrenheit 451, though? And he gets so it he's is. so beloved for that novel, a novel I, I liked and probably would still like. But it's that is a book of it's like speech competition you know it's rhetorical competition in novel form yeah i i agree that this this part was very much like fahrenheit 451 except i found the monologuing of 451 easier to comprehend for me Um, sure it wasn't as like convoluted and as abstract in a lot of ways even though i mean it dealt with abstract themes it though it was clear more clearly put forth i think in fahrenheit 451 than it was in um halloway's speeches yeah i pulled a quote from it just to try and show why it's kind of a a low overall for me i don't it's weird because it felt like it worked because he tried did the voice of his father work at all for you because he did come across as kind of an aw shucks I'm just trying to figure this out with you guys. I will say one thing I loved is kind of a high is that I like that he's doing it in the library and he, they literally don't have time for a plan. The part that would have drove me insane would have been if he was able to, after the speeches, after his grandiose topic, uh, thoughts on good and evil, if he's like, oh, and also I got a plan, let's do this thing. But like right. he literally runs out of time because he's just talking and trying to figure this out. <laughs> so and, then, and then it's like, oh shit, we don't, okay. <laughs> We're just, let's just try <laughs> the and- The door opens uh, and they send somebody yeah. in there. Yeah. Let's just weekly, you know, waver and then hide, please. So that I did really love. <laughs> how that got interrupted i thought that worked actually perfectly but yeah Yeah. the speechifying itself i don't know i here let me read through this quote see if any of it connects to you now because this is the page I, i pulled um this is will asks him for help and says you've always been helpful helpful or you've always helped he says thanks but it's not true charles halloway examined one very empty hand i'm a fool always looking over your shoulder to see what's coming instead of right at you to see what's here but then for what salve it gives me every man's a fool which means you got to pitch in all your life bail out board over tie rope patch plaster pat cheeks kiss brows laugh cry make do against the day you're the worst fool of all and shout help which uh, here's an aside that feels like a sentence from the narration not something a person would speak <laughs> uh, right. anyway the, uh, then all you need is one person's answer i see it so clear across the country tonight lie cities towns more jerk water stops of fools so the carnival streams by shakes any tree and it rains jackasses separate jackasses i should say individuals with no one they think or no actual no one actual to answer their help unconnected fools that's the harvest of the carnival comes smiling after with its threshing machine so it's it's odd because there's a couple of lines in there I like, and then I wonder, is it the character's voice being well-realized, or is it just the narration bleeding in? Because it's, 
You know, Ray Bradbury's been writing his ass off this whole book. We've talked about that in part one extensively. It's a clearly intensely written book with a very specific mood. So it's like I can't hate that little bit. I can't hate the imagery and his idea about these, you know, these unconnected, um, sort of pitifully unaware, prone to human error people. But I, I don't know. It's did, did that quote move you, or did, did you feel lost in that one also? I didn't feel lost in that one, but the the reason I didn't is because it's so clearly connected to some of the previous characters that were introduced, um, including Jim, but also Miss Foley. And mm-hmm. yeah, if if we did not have, I think the uh, the actions of Miss Foley and of Jim versus Will and um, of some of the other characters in this book, then his speechifying would make zero sense at all. Like it definitely needs all the action that lead up that leads up to yes. his speech. Otherwise it would just be nonsense. For, for sure. sure. Yeah, he'd be raving mad. Yeah. <laughs> as, as the expression goes. Yeah. I didn't dislike the ideas. How about this then? Let me, let me talk through this out loud and see if it makes sense. Uh, the only time that I really hate this. I don't know if it's a device, right? Like monologuing. That's, is it a device if the ancient Greeks did it? <laughs> or so, you yeah, know, it's like, it's I don't know. It's a, yeah. It's not exactly the newest invention. Um, so I, I'm not sure how to phrase that, but I don't mind it if the story doesn't then bear it out 100%. That bothers me a ton because it's like, mm-hmm. let's not give characters omnipotence. And if they're going to be mouthpieces for something or archetypes or however you want to phrase it, let's do something with it, right? A little twist, a little subtlety. Do you think everything he says bears out in the story then? Like all of the threads he pulls, his ideas about good and evil. Obviously, he does find the ultimate solution. to phrase it that way so in that sense it could be a little dissatisfying for i guess a person like me but did you find did that bug you like do you think anything he said was wrong is what i'm getting at no i don't think that anything he said was wrong in the way that it was presented that annoys me he had that does I just, yeah, I don't, I don't mind a character who goes off on a long speech, but I don't want it to feel like a mouthpiece for the themes of the story. That feels yeah. weak to me. That's like weak storytelling to me. Yeah, I, I thought that as far as using him to further the theme or to make the theme more obvious was unnecessary. Um, yeah, I think that yeah, they're like his speechifying did like really bring home some of like the thematic elements, but it it really like, if you're paying attention to the novel anyway, it's unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess it's just a part of like Bradbury's personal style. I mean, if we look at compared mm-hmm. to Fahrenheit 451, I haven't read, I don't think anything else by him other than these two novels. So a lot of short stories, but yeah, Martian yeah. Chronicles never it, did Martian Chronicles. Nope, I haven't read that either. It's an odd one, to be sure, because it wasn't... It's like those classic sci-fi novels of the 40s, 50s, 60s, where it was just cobbled together through magazines. Like, I don't think he visualized it. Jeez, it's a late night and we're making up words. I don't think he envisioned it (laughs) is the word I wanted. Um, I don't think he envisioned it as a novel, but it got put together. It got packaged as one, is my memory of it. Was there a lot of monologuing in that one, too? 
Yeah, a little bit. I remember a character like opens a hot dog stand on Mars and has a big speech about that for some reason. It's it's an interesting book, you know. It's got his normal kind of charms to it. This this book, I still think of all the things I've read of his, is the most intensely written. I don't think I've ever seen him go off like quite like he does in this book. Yeah. Um, to the extent to which he wants to make the dread of this carnival real is uh, quite extreme, frankly. Like he does not pull punches so to speak um so that was also my low yeah and i'm glad we got to get into it any other thoughts on his speechifying overall i don't know if it worked for either of us i will say that it was not enough to drag me out of the story or something i just kind of also once that segment ends it's it ends like he doesn't go back to it again even when he succeeds at the climax he doesn't go on and on he delivers a paragraph and is just kind of like i did it damn it don't you see i win and then it's you know it's over yeah, and and what you had started to point out too was, it it was made more bearable. I think for me, when he kind of interrupts himself and he's like, "Are you even getting it?" Like talking to the boys, like directly addressing yes. the boys. Yes. Do you even is this even making sense? Am I just talking to myself? Like, am I talking out of my ass? That I think yeah. added a bit more of a charm to it, so that it wasn't as like grating on my nerves or anything. For sure. Um, without that, I I probably would have been like slogging through that chapter <laughs> definitely no 100 percent. yeah i think there's just an injection enough of voice and uncertainty it's odd too final thing i'll say about it i promise it's kind of re- revisiting what i just said but it's like the rhetorical cadence of it the characterization within the war that dialogue i liked it but ultimately to know that everything he said was true it was just like okay it's i guess he just laid out the story for me then like ugh, not mm-hmm. my favorite thing to have happen <laughs> it's like yeah. you know it's i don't know sometimes though i know authors it's you know you kind of you want to be super subtle but at some point that becomes its own form of infuriation and so it's i, I get the impetus is like let's make some let's help the reader a bit i you know guide them along it's i i don't know it's tough though it's not easy to do in the right way balanced any other lows i've got a mixed Uh, one yeah i've got another low yeah um i i I think the demise of the illustrated man Uh, he is the main bad guy he is the dude that needs to be defeated and i i think that especially after coming off of like the the death of the witch I was expecting something more dynamic and something more um, uh, suspenseful, kind of like the witch scene. But it was just like, nope, I caught on to your trick. Not going to fool me. And and I'm just going to hug you to death, like show you so much. Yeah. Love. And and you're just going to, you know, suffocate from my love. So, (laughs) yeah. This is so funny. I literally had this as a high-low combo, too. This oh, is really? all high, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you find... What about their final exchange? How about this? What about the fact that the illustrated man's final move is to try the age trick again? What, any any readings on that? I mean, is he trying to take over some paternal instinct? It's... I. But let me just say this bit of my thoughts now. I'll, I'll articulate this whole thought, and then you can feel free to jump on it. Like... Are we just spoiled then by some kind of like superhero culture we live in that we want some kind of like new final attack or is this like my video game brain being like he didn't have a better attack or (laughs) there's no like boss there's no final boss to fight like it it just ends in the most clear archetypal way 
with the solution that his dad clearly outlined that would win, you know, it's like there's no once he figured out what he needed, it it just ends. Like the, there's no climax to it really. It's yeah. quite flat. Like it's he tries the age trick on his dad, but then he just grins his way and loves him through the evil, and it's and we're good. It I don't know it. So I, I part of me reacted like, well, is this just me putting false expectations of you know? our comic book expectations and our blockbuster brain and video game brain or because I think as a storytelling thematic choice it's like fine and it's that his father does it felt fitting especially after the second half of the book the way it developed and everything but it did just feel like all right now I'm really going off on a tangent but let me say one final thing I, sw- I swear one last thing because this is <laughs> the thing that strikes me as so weird it's such a clear almost allegorical or archetypal clear ending but then the whole tone and style of the book was so adventurous that it's kind of like you've got this adventurous style this crazy tone and this intense thing married with the most safe maybe boring storytelling conventions it's just very traditional and Bradbury can often feel that way I think it's like he he has his roots in some actually like pretty simple traditional morality storytelling or something so it, mm-hmm. I don't know th- those two things mashed together felt very weird at times alright that was my final thought <laughs> I promise what did you make yeah. of the ending well I thought I wasn't sure if the reason that he didn't make the illustrated man's death more um suspenseful is because we were already enmeshed in um like dealing with the suspense about Jim and, You're right, and how right. he possibly could be dead at yeah. that point. Mm-hmm. Um so I don't know whether that would be like overwhelming or if he thought it would be overwhelming, but the the way that the witch dies is so fantastical and is so fitting, I think, for Yeah. Yep. The fantastical elements of the novel itself. And then to have the illustrated man pull a maneuver the that Mr. Cougar had done, right? The the guy that they accidentally killed. Um, it was just, I was like, there's not a different way. that it, He knows that that's not going to work, right? The illustrated man knows that's not going to work. So why is he doing that? It was just very, for me, I felt really confused coming from how the illustrated man's tactics throughout the book are very different from this final tactic at the end. And I was just like, okay, I was just a little confused by that. He just, he does on the whole seem kind of bumbling and desperate. Like he just kind of like, I'll, I'll sick my whole carnival on him and just kind of roam around like everything through. Well, even throughout, like what are his moves, right? He, he tries to lure people in with the attractions. Like, okay, I get, you know, it's good. But in terms of just, again, I'm superhero talk brain I have, but it's like in terms of power, like the witches, she has a strange, you know, supernatural gift that is creepy and weird and eerie and like she's well realized. His power is just like I just wander around with these people and like find and try and find people. He maybe has some kind of attraction to the energy or kind of attraction can kind of read not minds, but I'm not sure what it is. But to see it end so limply, the other thing I'd say you summarize perfectly, the witch's scene is so good and intense with the bullet and everything. Like, what a great, intense, yeah. the crowd, it, like, phenomenal, perfect. And, yeah, the dark man or the illustrated man at the end is just, it's like, compared to that is a nothing scene. <laughs> like, literally yeah. nothing. It's when you compare the pace and the tone of those two against each other, it's almost, I don't know, comical or sad or something. Yeah. Is, is very different and, and you just and maybe it is the, that we you know 
expect the big boss to be harder to kill. <laughs> yeah, I, honestly, I think I, I think that's just coming to my brain a little. Yeah, truly. I'll do a high then because I know that so that was a high low for me like as I mentioned the simple summary that I did the long version of is I just think the story could end in a much more dark and cynical place and instead it wraps itself up very neatly in in for the forces of good even though the the father says something to the extent of it'll come back like it's not over this is just a you know we got a reprieve here and that's and that's good but it's such an obvious tidy ending for him such a victory mm-hmm. for those forces so even his friend didn't get of all the you know if this gets made today that friend is getting sacrificed like there's a loss there's something that gets lost <laughs> and the, and in this case nothing is lost like the te- yeah. the teacher i guess or the the, so, oh yeah, Miss that, Foley's gone. Yeah. It just didn't feel. You know, it's a minor character. It's like okay, it, yeah. that's tragic for sure. Um, same with the salesman, but it doesn't. Yeah, I just feel like a greater uh, modern storytelling or something. The way we're our, our dark TV or I don't know what the trend is. You know, this is a grand thesis uh, to get to that point. But we would expect something a little, a little more taken from them. And instead, they're just kind of like shrugging it off, being like, "Yeah, we we prevail." Anyway, so that was mixed to me. Uh, It worked, but also maybe a little limp. The high moments, it's the witch. It's the witch, baby. Yeah, (laughs) makes sense. More witch. It's... It really unlocks the story's tone in a really incredible way, I think. She gets the creepiness, the dread... It let her let him describe her closed shut eyelids a million ways i think stylistically this book is incredible and pretty bold triumphant yeah. at times I, I would say i yeah i just think more of the witch or more i wish he let himself go a little bit more on in terms of just characters and people corrupted by the carnival having Un, a supernatural unexplainable and really off-putting things about them because yeah. the stuff when she jumps into the story it's the eeriest least predictable creepiest part maybe and maybe my reading's too simple maybe he did that and too much of a good thing right it's like if there's 20 characters with cool powers then it's like well are any of these really that interesting come on i mean you know it's you're ruining the surprise and the fun but i do think the witch really unlocks something in this book yeah, I agree. She was, I, and she's the reason that I I was so much more curious about the other quote freaks that um, are under the illustrated man's con- um, control. I was just like, we we he's he mentioned several of the other characters. There's the skeleton man. There's um the 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 dwarf who's actually the lightning. Um, rod salesman and there's um, the fire eater was one that was mentioned Um, the woman who is the most beautiful woman in the world who was encased in ice and somehow it's melted Mm -hmm. we don't know where she is now like that's that's still up for I don't know (laughs) know what happened to her but (laughs) But yes like I wanted to read more about them for sure (laughs) and I and we did get a little bit in the searching scene about the what what's the terminology he uses a uh, dwarf was it yeah i forget yeah. his terms we'd i'd prefer to speak on his terms though i know they might they may be outdated or incorrect um yeah that, there's some hints that he has photographic memory uh, but that could also just be the kid's perception it's hard to tell what the narrator wants to entrust us with versus the kid's perception. <laughs> yeah. So that's that was kind of an odd thing cuz i thought is this meant to be imposing cuz we know 
the capabilities of the dwarf or is it just meant to be the kid panicking it's anyway a couple of witch quotes for you real quick let's get one in this is a good introduction to her look at how he does an obvious thing well bradbury this is um a paragraph on 132 i think this is the first time they really come to know her too she's trying to uh, she's flying through the air in the balloon hunting them down she yeah. knew, they knew that she was blind but special blind she could dip down her hands to feel the bumps of the world touch house roofs probe, probe attic bins reap dust examine droughts that blew through halls and souls that blew through people droughts that vented from bellows to thump wrist to pound temples to pulse down like an autumn rain so she could just feel their souls disinhabit or no I skipped a line to, and to back to bellows again just as they felt that balloon shift down like an autumn rain there it is so she could feel their souls disinhabit, re-inhabit their tremulous nostrils. Each soul a vast warm fingerprint felt different. She could roil it in her hand like clay. Smelled different. Will could hear her snuffing his life away. Tasted different. She savored them in her raw-gummed mouth, her puff at her tongue. Sounded different. She stuffed their souls in one ear, tissued them out the other. There's just no other <laughs> if I told you that an author was going to do a paragraph and I said it's going to be about sensory information and before each sense they're literally going to tell you the sense that they're about to describe <laughs> would that yeah. entice you normally like the normally, funny thing no. <laughs> I know the funny thing is that he makes it so blatant but in its list qualities in its tangents in its kind of viciousness and unpredictability and eeriness like it just kind of works it's so strange he (laughs) he really just again is writing his out of his mind in this paragraph yeah the the style of writing is just i mean it's unparalleled It's, it's amazing the metaphors that he can come up with it's so refreshing to read something like this and be constantly surprised by his ability to describe something in a unique way yeah Yeah, he comes up with, even as I was reading that, I caught a thing I hadn't contemplated much was he makes some kind of snake reference there. It's like something is an adder. I was just kind of like, wait, what is it? I didn't even, it's not the reason I picked this. I don't even really recall interpreting that or having any thoughts about it. So yeah, a definite high for me. I've, I've gone on more tangents this episode than usual, but I had to just get a quote in about her. It's, I think she's the best part of maybe the whole book, if not in terms of within the world of the story, not the author, but the story, I think she's the best thing in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's amazing. And any um, highs for you? Throw some out there. Yeah, so my two highs, one of them was the the metaphors and the descriptions. So you just mm-hmm. did a really good job of pointing that out. So I think we got that one. Any um, others you want to highlight, high. though? Feel free. No, it's good. Okay. <laughs> The um, the other high that I have is um, the grate scene when the kids are underneath the grate under the cigar store. Yeah, oh yeah. I really enjoyed that. Was like so filled with suspense, but also we got to see um, kind of the the more aggressive and angrier side of both the illustrated man and um, Will's dad. So we get yeah. to see some shifting in characterization there, which I really appreciated. The dwarf um with the almost like robotic lens where he can is like photographic memory but then doesn't process it until like the boys have already left it was i i just really enjoyed that entire i think it was like two chapters but the entire scene there i just thought that that was so well done and so full of suspense but also really wonderfully described and 
and very pivotal, I think, in a lot of ways. Definitely. Did it make you think about their characters differently and how? Because it's to me, that scene is definitely their exchanges. The father, the banter, the kind of double on not double entendre. I don't know if that's the right expression, but the the backhanded and subtle double meanings of what they're saying, you know, it's (laughs) when they're um, each aware but not aware kind of a vibe. Right. They're they're filling each other out to see. Yeah. How threatening the other is. Um, but that's also when, um, and I'll talk about this more with the essay section, that's when Will's perspective of his own dad also begins to shift, which is really important to the story. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And any, you're sure no metaphors or descriptions to throw out there? This is the moment. Well, Um, it's this this moment. I, (laughs) (laughs) um, I, I chose one from, uh, page 231 which is the uh, beginning of chapter 49 um, a hand dug like a mole in the dark Will's hand it emptied his pockets it delved it rejected it dug again for while it was dark he knew those million old men might march hustle rush leap smash dad with what they were and this shut up night with just four seconds to think of them they might do anything to dad if Will didn't hurry these legions from time future, all the alarms of coming life so mean, raw, and true, you couldn't deny that that's how Dad would look tomorrow, next day, the day after the day after that. That cattle run of possible years might sweep Dad under. So quick. Who has more pockets than a magician? A boy. Whose pockets contain more than a magician's? A boy's. Um, and then it goes on. But that was like when they wandered into the maze to try to save Jim, not knowing that Jim had already run out the back door there. Um... But I just I liked that the the descriptions and then following with like his comparison to a magician, like a boy versus a magician and, and the the childishness of that. So Yeah. The innocence and the faith that he yeah. will find something. How many times in the story does the dark man offer free tickets? <laughs> it's, <laughs> right. it's, the manipulation on his part is so blatant. It's yeah, you gotta yeah. admire the hustle of it, I guess. What would you sell your soul for for free? You know, what, and you got a threshold planned. I don't. I don't know. Not don't, free carnival tickets, then. That's not going to do it. Ren fair, nope. free Renaissance <laughs> fair tickets. <laughs> nope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It would for as much as our American, I almost like iconographic songs tell us, you know, about selling your soul to the devil. I'm not. I don't know. I'm not sure what it would take for me either. <laughs> More than carnival tickets. That's I'll tell you that much. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll see a good clean show. Thank you very much, sirs and madams. Uh, no other highs and lows. Let's move to the imaginary essays. This is the segment of the podcast when we do one final kind of analytical look at the book, a deep dive, if you will. We have each asked the other person an essay style question, which the other person will then respond to. We have not actually written essays, of course. We just plan outlines and kind of plan around them. It is one final tool for us to analyze the book and consider it. I feel like I rambled a lot, Amanda, so I'm going to throw mine at you first. Do you want to go first? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Excellent. Let's get into it then. I'm I'm having to reread. We prepped for this pod a little bit ago. I'm trying to reread my question now. I I remember the gist, but (laughs) like looking back over exactly what... Yes, okay, I remember this now. So I already talked about, in my mind, how I like that this book is stylistically bold, but also kind of marries that with some, I think, pretty, maybe too obvious archetypal work, some kind of blatant, maybe moral tales. I'll, I'm going to let you interpret it. Um, so my prompt was this. 
you can choose any archetype to analyze in this book except good and evil or good versus evil that felt too obvious to me and then i just said please analyze it however you want so give us some archetypal analysis literary religious i don't know even even some other version what do you got (laughs) um so i focused on um will's father charles holloway and how he is actually of two different archetypes Sure. Um, two different character archetypes that um, normally don't go together. Um, but he is both the sage, the the wisdom guru. Um, he, but he's also, by the end, he turns into kind of like a knight in shining armor type, mm. um, which is odd for an old man. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I liked that there was that archetype, and that's why I chose this one. There's this archetype, but it's also kind of turned on its head in a way, um, which I found refreshing. Um, so what I did is I analyzed how he is both a sage and a knight, um, okay. and how those two kind of like he, it switches over almost mid novel to 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 being knight in shining armor so some of the archetypal characteristics of each and how um he fits into each one so for sage um usually a sage is a loner right and that's Mm -hmm. definitely true of him at the beginning he like barely has any conversation with his own son and we see him kind of have some conversation with his wife. Yeah, but he, yeah, also, well, anyway, sorry, I didn't yeah, need to but jump it's in not, here. It's not great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's conversation. He's defi- <laughs> yeah, he's, yeah he's, he's definitely more comfortable in the library, which is why he goes to the library after his wife falls asleep. Yeah. Like almost every night, he's back in the library surrounded by books, right? Um, he's not great at communication. Um, and is very cryptic, perhaps, in in when he does speak, which is very much like the the sage archetype as well. So when we we were just talking about the monologues uh, and how he's trying to convey these ideas to these two teenage boys who are just like, "What are you even talking about?" And as yeah. readers, we're also like, "What? Hold on a second. <laughs> let me let me just reread that." Um, but that also, I think, fits with the archetype of somebody who is like just so knowledgeable and just trying to like get it out, but it's not coming out the way that like right. anybody else can really understand. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, another aspect is that he relies on facts and history for the foundation of his beliefs, which is definitely something when you think of like Merlin or any of the other sages that we encounter in literature. They are often surrounded by books. They are often surrounded by scrolls and other mm-hmm. um, pieces of history that they use in order to shape their beliefs of what's happening now. What would Gandalf um, do? You know, it's yeah. what I wear oh, around yeah. my neck every day. There you go. <laughs> um, so as soon as like the great scene ends and and um, he's trying to figure out how to defeat the carnival, he goes to the library and and refers to these books um in order to try to figure out how to defeat the carnival uh so he does of course rely on that and also another aspect of of being a sage is that you're old 
that the character is often old. Mm-hmm. You see these old men with like graying beards down to their knees and like a hunched back because they're always looking over books and stuff. Um, and his age in, in this novel is something that is really harped on <laughs> oh yeah the whole first um, half that's really all we know about him well exactly but that's his primary concern <laughs> right exactly and yeah. it is his kind of like weakness there. that's when he's the most tempted is is about his age and then when he's literally brought to his knees it's because of the visions of his his aging um in the mirrors in the in the magic mirrors there so, um, mm-hmm. yeah, those are all important aspects of a sage that I think that he definitely accomplishes as a character or definitely no, has as a character. Yeah. Perfectly observed. I, yeah. I would not have, it would not have been my pick for this one, which means we asked the right question. <laughs> that's how I know. <laughs> or that's how I know my question. I'm satisfied. Cause I was like, yeah, it would not have been what I thought about as perfect. <laughs> and what about for the night? You said it's dual. We yeah. Get two, so two for, for one. The, yeah. Yeah, the, the knight in shining armor. Um, so, again, I looked at the archetypal characteristics and how he fit those. Um, so, one um, characteristic is that the knight, uh, the knight's beliefs are usually based in some kind of faith. Um, so, when you think of, like, Lancelot and all them, they have faith in um, God, country, and the code, the knightly code or whatever. Right, right. right. Um, in this case, um, his faith is in both his son and in knowledge. So there's that sage mm. element kind of getting mixed in, but also faith in, in his son and family, which would be kind of like, you know, king and country um, in a way. Mm. Um, uh, also, the knight is strong and tall, which was really important, I think, for this character because at the beginning he's often depicted as, like, he's he's got white hair, um, he's always smoking a pipe, uh, also a, a sage thing. And he's kind of like, Will sees him as small. But during the great scene, when we look at page 165, um, it, that starts to shift. So on page 165, it says, uh, the illustrated man went rigid, spun about and strode off the ink portraits of Jim and Will crushed hard, iron tight in his fists. Silence. It was so quiet under the grill, Mr. Holloway thought the two boys had died of fright. And Will, below, gazing up, eyes wet, mouth wide, thought, Oh my gosh, why didn't I see it before? Dad's tall. Dad's very tall indeed. Mm. Um, and then on the next page, he goes on to say, uh, The small father, who was very tall now, walked slowly away. So we see the shift from the old sage hermit-ish vision that we have uh, from Will to actually now becoming that shining knight, the the tall and strong and threatening evil, threatening the face of evil even um, at that point. Um, And then another aspect is that uh, the knight is willing to sacrifice himself for the good of others. And we see that when, um, twice actually with Charles, yeah, um, yeah, where the first time is in the library with the illustrated man coming and like crushing his hand and, right. um, and he's like, nope, not going to tell you. I don't know what you're talking about. What boys? What? And then also when he runs into the maze of mirrors, knowing the dangers there, 
because he caught a glimpse of it before he went in there in order to save Jim, who's not even his own son, but is somebody who needed saving. Um, mm-hmm. So we see the, the the call to sacrifice self in order to save others there. Um, yeah, that seems like his... That, that was the thing he was most ready to do. Certainly yeah. more ready to do that than articulate a plan, which he did not have. <laughs> that, that is for sure. That's yeah. also very much like a knight in shining armor, right? You don't have a yeah. plan. You just go yeah. in and do it, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. With the witch, too, it felt that way as well. Yeah. Um, the, he, the, another aspect is that, of course, the knight saves the day against evil in the end. Um, and in this case, with, with laughter. And the final thing that I pointed out was that um, the knight is incorruptible. He's often faced with things that could seduce him. Often in in medieval times, it was like, you know, women who were trying to seduce and he would not fall for it. Mm -hmm. Um, And in this case, um, the seduction comes in the form of the offer to become younger. The illustrated man offers. He's like, hey. Um, if you look on page 194 and in in, that's back in the library scene when he's going toe to toe with him and uh, the illustrated man knows that the boys are somewhere in the library. Mm-hmm. He says, um, tell you what, said Mr. Dark, casually waving a cigarette. If you help me within 15 seconds, I'll give you your 40th birthday. 10 seconds and you can celebrate 35, a rare young age. A stripling almost by comparison. I'll start counting by my watch and by God, if you should jump to it, lend a hand. I might just cut 30 years off your life. Bargains galore, as the posters say. Think of it. Starting all over again. Blah, blah, blah. And instead, Charles Holloway just kind of like closes his eyes and stops his ears and is hunches over and like refuses to even engage. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's what he most wants when we see leading up to that point. He regrets his age the entire book, but he is still able to resist that urge because he's incorruptible, um, like the typical knight. Yeah, that's uh, he does such an admirable job of. I don't know the tall. Now that I look back, I meant the author, by the way. Sorry, I just he was it rather ambiguous there. <laughs> Bradbury <laughs> does an admirable job of sort of picking the moments to pull back. It's why, again, I'm so struck at the end of this book by how he'll venture off and then really rein things in to simplify. The tall thing is the perfect example. I was thinking about that more when you were giving your explanations. It was just like to have a sentence read like that after you're coming off of paragraphs a total stream of consciousness musings about boar tusks and the bristle of a thing and then there's a Mesopotamia reference for some reason it's just you're coming off that and then all of a sudden it's like his dad seemed tall he was tall dad now it's just like man yeah he he really you know takes some of the simplest ideas and can um can make them enticing in a way or something mm-hmm. yeah fascinating any other archetypes you did not write about to give quick mention to because i would have done i'm not sure when i i don't often plan my own version when i give you one to be it's not like i had a plan and then gave you to see what you would do with the plan or with the prompt yeah. i think mine would have gone for father son i'm not really sure if that's an archetype but like familial bond i maybe also would have done some kind of it would have been some kind of father thing, I, but I wouldn't have thought of the ones you did. Those are yeah, they're perfect. Any other archetypes we ignored? Darkness, maybe. I guess I said oh, no yeah. evil. Yeah, that would have been a good one. Darkness. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
I'd have to do a little list Googling to check my literary dictionaries, see what like examples of archetype come up in there. Because if they're not color based, I do have a hard time remembering some of them. And they're also culturally bound too. but like the color ones are the most obvious. Right. So dark and light would be a pretty. Yeah. Anyway. okay. And do you want to throw yours at me? I'll do my best. Yeah. Um, So we both enjoyed the, the witch so much. So I was just wondering about the other quote freaks in the novel so what role do they play in the novel are they good are they evil are they even responsible for their actions thus could they be good or evil so i was just wondering your thoughts on that yeah i'm gonna ignore the final question because (laughs) only because (laughs) for good reason um no only because i don't want to veer too far off into just musing about philosophy and then we can talk about you know Kant or or what you know wherever we'd go from there but I it's not that it's unimportant I just don't think the book has an answer to who's responsible the or it mm-hmm. does it's, the answer is obvious Mr. Dark is because when he dies it all ends <laughs> so it's like yeah they're all enthralled to him that's that's the really simple answer to this is kind of like well this is the one there's one archetypal evil he even says at some point when the father's trying to distract him like he's like i'm not the devil i'm older than the devil like what do you think i'm some christian creation for amusement like that's a joke to me he's i think he says at some point like bring forth the bible and i'll swear on it like i don't care (laughs) it's i'm I'm a grander idea than that man you know i'm not i'm not some entity dreamed up by some religious you know converts or whatever anyway so yeah they're all enthralled to him is the that's the annoying answer to your final question but let's yeah let's dig into these because there's a lot to say about these characters and how they work in the story here's i thought the best starting point was with his partner right because Mm -hmm. his partner has an immediate tragedy happen to him (laughs) an immediate catastrophe and i think his reaction to it now looking back is pretty telling which is that he props him up and electrocutes him to help cover his crimes. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> if that's uh, if that's the extent to which you're going with the person, presumably you have the most respect for, to put it, I don't know if that's to put it correctly, but like that's how I'm thinking of it. The person who you want to you want to do it with the most, the, you know, you're, it's co instead of just they're an employee. It's their, you know, we have equal footing, equal respect. Like the fact that he gets introduced to us that way is pretty important now that I look back at the whole story because it shows just how far he's willing to go. You know, his ruthlessness or competition. And so, look at some of these descriptions, right? Um, their police are there and they're seeing is this old man dead or what and it says the freaks made a commotion of blinks and glares what next from the statue in the cold sizzling chair so it's like they're an audience for this you know they're like holy shit what's he gonna do to this Uh, we know what he's done to us but what's he about to do to his partner the old man's one eye gummed itself the mouth collapsed a bubble of yellow mud in a sulfur bath and then he banged a switch grinning wildly at no one as if he's deriving pleasure on his own from this he thrust a steel sword in the old man's empty glove like hand a drench of electricity prickled from the seer music box times of the ancient stubble cheeks that deep eye showed swift as a bullet hole hungry for will it found and ate his image so it's you know he's it's like he's under control he's hypnotized he's being literally pumped full of electricity to prop up his corpse it um yeah. it's just such an intense and grim scene when you realize that this is the closest connection or relation he has and so that's that's the standard that's the tone right for the rest of his behavior in the book i think going going from there 
the sad part of this prompt is like, I don't think I have much interesting stuff to say because the freaks just aren't, again, to use Bradbury's language, the, the employees, the however you want to phrase it, the, the people there don't have a lot of agency and they're just not that interesting. It's the mm-hmm. Dust Witch, right? I'll get to her in a second. Like she, <laughs> the Dust Witch is the queen of the whole book or whatever. Um, I So we'll get to her in a second. One thing I want to interject, actually, I want to go in the order I established. There, this is another case where I'll, I'll now turn to the father character in the story because unfortunately I think he summarizes the entire entity well <laughs> so it's like I can't escape the, the uh, intra-universe explanation for what's happening here because it's kind of on the page um, yeah. he says about them um, oh it would be lovely if you could be just fine act fine but not think of it all the time but it's hard right with the last piece of the lemon cake waiting in the ice box middle of the night not yours but you lie away in a hot sweat for a day do i need to tell you or a hot spring day noon and there you are chained to your school desk and away off goes the river cool and fresh over the rock fall boys can hear clear water like that for miles so minute by minute hour by hour a lifetime it never ends never stops you got the best choice this second now this next and the next after that be good be bad that's what the clock ticks that's what it says in the ticks run swim or stay hot run eat or lie hungry and then it's basically a self-control issue that human impulse will drive you towards what Christians would call sin and what I think the dark man would call something else, <laughs> rawness or, I don't know, rugged, not rugged, like, yeah, it's like rawness. It's like some purity in you that isn't good, but it's, right. you know, it's at the core of your being, something like that. And so th- that makes the freaks in the carnival, again, Bradbury's term, just kind of thralls to this person to this entity it's they all succumb that's the thing right it's they're Mm -hmm. all you know these um in a sense what's the opposite of a paragon (laughs) do you have is there a word for that a a not a (laughs) non-paragon of of like (laughs) yeah human weakness we can say sin to simplify though i know that based on the book itself that's not the term they would use but we can simplify with that term and so it it just it, they can't be they can't fight their urges the carnival in that sense is kind of i'm just coming across this now this is a total accidental sound alike but the carnival is kind of like carnal in that way do you see what I, does that make sense like it's yes. there's a powerful natural force and instinct not exactly the most slightest metaphor like the carnival is of the senses it's overwhelming it's especially at the time this was written it's like the peak of entertainment in a sense like it's this is pre grand cinema this is pre tving your room in your living room like this is it's like the biggest boldest thing in the world and so it's it's come to swamp you over you know or like take you over and so in that sense, I just feel like pity for them. That's my final, not my final thought, but it's kind of where I leave it, where it's kind of, they're also pitiable, even the Dust Witch. Like, think of her final scene. Let's actually jump to that now. Because of all yeah. the creatures, of all the freaks, the, she's the one who gets the most agency and power, you know, mm-hmm. even though she's thwarted by a kid with a gun. Or was it a bow? It was a bow, <laughs> not a gun. <laughs> no, thwarted yeah, by... yeah, yeah, when on the roof, yeah. Yeah, yeah, as a bow. But... Um, her final scenes are like excruciating to read because she knows that she's done in for she knows that the father has realized the change or the sort of not change but the sort of solution to put it simply mm-hmm. but then but her final scenes are so agonizing to read because she because he forces it upon her that's another I guess I just wanted to pull up one more example of that because 
the dark man the illustrated man it's another sense of like they have no agency they're my tools to make this go i'm gonna make this work right i'm gonna you know force this upon them and her final scenes are just yeah devastating in that sense because he won't he won't let the carnival end he won't let the show end in front of the crowd you know as soon as the scene starts part of the brilliance of it you know that he will not shut down in front of the crowd he needs the illusion of the entire thing but then of course you think well if the father has some kind of concoction right Mm -hmm. a couple of lines i'll pull for that 221 the witch flung one hand up to feel the shape of this audacity, which came off the 54-year-old man like a fever. Mr. Dark was spun around as if hit by a traveling gunshot. That's when he That's when he first comes out of the crowd. And that's how you know if he's the gunshot, then you know that the Dark Man's in trouble, right? Yep. And so... There's another couple lines I'll pull for 224. Mr. Dark turned to go pat, conjure, calm his dust-crone friend, but cracked to a halt at the crack of the rifle being reopened, the bullet ejected by Will's father to assure the audience it was there. It seemed real enough, yet he had read long ago about the substitute bullet, so he then goes through that trick, and it's clear that he does something. So it's, you know, he's like going to console her, but then it's also... It's also going to, going to go so wrong, and you know that. And it's, you know, the illustrated man later, there's a paragraph here at the end of 226. It says, And in the moment before the illustrated man himself translated the mouthings quickly, Charles Holloway cried faintly, Hold! Will held his breath. They're holding the gun together, metaphorically fitting enough. Far back among wax statues, Jim hid away, dripped saliva from his chin. Strapped in an electric chair, a dead alive mummy hummed power in his teeth. Mr. Dark's illustrations writhed with sick sweat as he clenched his fist in a final time, but too late. And then they shoot and kill her. It's just fitting there at the end that they draw upon the image of the the electrocuted man. I guess maybe you could say it's because they want to, you know, make it clear the carnival is about to be defeated. But it just seems like he's got this population totally controlled and that it's Mm -hmm. there's all these disturbing, disturbing figures, you know, totally bewitched by him. So it's. I don't know. My final reading, like I'll revisit now, is an emotional one or something because it it just seems so pathetic and pitiable. Like the Dust Witch, especially coming off of her scenes of horror. Like I don't know something about that final scene with the crowd there. It was disturbing, and you kind of feel for her. But then it's you know you also know she was enslaving people or something too. So it's you can yeah. only go so far. But I just think the writing really veered in that direction of the tension of sort of putting the control with the his father and taking it away from the dark man that yeah that was an all-time ramble for me i hope i said some coherent arguments in there but i just think it's i don't i think the under the command so to answer some of your original questions not being in full control being these kind of pitiable totems of his evil or whatever you want to call it his primal uh, influence or something I just think that's where my answer would go for an essay question like that it's mm-hmm. I in the end you can't help but read them but there even the dust witch who has such a fall right she's so menacing and then ends up being so pathetic it's I think it all points in that direction even the the dark man's ending is just so muted and pathetic and it's just such a I don't know yeah quiet ending yeah what are your thoughts on the 100,000 things I just said? <laughs> now, any, um, what do you think about the Dust Witch's turn? Or, or how about the climax of the bullet? Any readings on those? Anything, any thoughts on the freaks in that moment? 
I think what made it so compelling, so I, I liked, we had talked previously about how that scene was just like, I mean, the best, right? But um, yeah. I think that one of the reasons why it was the best is because she is almost sympathetic at that point. We We feel bad for her because we also know from Charles Holloway's discussion and monologuing, we know that she doesn't really have a choice in the matter because she's like mm-hmm. sold her soul to this guy essentially and yeah and now is under his command but her end is like she's almost like whimpering right at the yeah. end like, yeah she's like some kind of sound dog. coming off of her yeah. yeah yeah and so she's pitiable in a way so so it's uh it complicates the the scene even more in a really nice way in a way that mm-hmm. i think shows how Bradbury is able to to make things not quite so black and white um, totally. in his writing which I really appreciate so yeah, it's, yeah. It, I, I thought it was weird that they also like flashed to the um, to Cougar I, it made sense to flash to Jim because of course that's somebody that he needs to right. that Halloween needs to rescue in the end but he he's not wanting to rescue the others so it was it was kind of a jarring thing that i still haven't quite figured out what the purpose of that is so yeah there there is that doesn't he offer to doesn't he offer jim the kind of role doesn't he say something like you could be my right hand man at some point in a desperate plea so it's 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 as if he holds a kind of extra modicum of respect or agency or withhold some agency for that position you know it's almost like he has a clear there's a commander and co-commander and then nothing else there's no he's got no other hierarchy in his in his so-called military group or something it's a strange yeah you wonder who's i guess it's ultimately if your question is along the lines of which i think it was kind of like who's in on it and who's not Mm -hmm. it's hard to answer you know i we have only the clearest answer which is when he ends it ends so we know that he's in on it (laughs) the dark man um the rest i think you're right it is one of the more nice gray areas of the story and the witch's end i think exemplifies it best probably so yeah yeah glad we got to touch on that any other thoughts on the the freaks as they are called nope I felt a little bad for the. It's just that the the dwarf or salesman turned into the dwarf didn't have. There were some nice lines in there for him, but the witch just had two incredible scenes. So it was just kind of. Yeah. I don't know. She really stole the attention for me away from it, and so yeah, he's in there too. I know I didn't analyze his presence, but it didn't feel like it do it did anything meaningful. And since her her death is like so climactic to the story, it felt like we her talking about her felt more appropriate. So yeah. All right, let's move to a couple more segments. We've got two more planned for today's book club pod. We'll briefly discuss this. This doesn't go on for long, usually. The Lost Pages, um, we're each going to discuss something from the book that we thought was either missing or something we want more of, maybe a continuation, an addition, just something we felt like we wanted more of in the book, really. Amanda, what are your Lost Pages for this novel? Um, just the, what I had said before, which is I would just love to read more about the at least one or two of the other quote freaks um, that are in the carnival because the witch was such a compelling character and there was mention of the skeleton man several times but yep but there's no I, I mean is it just like super thin like what I, okay I don't I don't really know what 
even at the end, he runs off with uh, the dwarf, the lightning rod man, right? Like, they yep. run off together. Yep. And I'm just like, okay, but... <laughs> so so I would like to read up more on, on that one, I suppose, uh, specifically the skeleton man. But um, there are a couple of other characters that are mentioned that I was just like, man, that sounds really, really fascinating. And, right. Uh-huh. And the witch was just so so great that i just i was like oh man instead of the speechifying could we get some more of the those characters maybe yeah let's see the skeleton man pull a rib out or so i don't yeah. know <laughs> i'm not sure what he would do you know bone hands I, yeah it's he's there too right at the library he's kind of like an escort i guess yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and this is um, I'm gonna bleed this right into mine then my lost pages because and this will probably be the final time I make this reference or allusion today. It is my brain broken by like Marvel superhero movie brain because I just think we need those side characters to be to be thrown in some kind of sp- little spice, a little bit extra, doing something mm-hmm. unique, super powered, supernatural, unexplainable. I think the witch were just the witch was just so creepy and fascinating, and the house scene especially it just asks so many questions and doesn't answer them all, which is lovely. That I just wanted some, I guess, to put it simply, you know, the the bad side, <laughs> the 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 side of evil. I I think they could have used some more life injected into them. Like it, I think yeah. it would have made the climax. I mean, I guess you risk it becoming unwieldy because if the climax is his father, you know, wielding a gun and fighting off a horde of superpower, like that's I, that's not great either. I don't like that either. <laughs> so it's, you know, I don't want the other extreme. But yeah, we needed one or two more, I think, fantastical creatures, again, in his language, freaks to be injected. I'm not really sure yes. what it would have done for it because I don't think it would have changed his vision of how the story should end, his his archetypal moral father-son victory ending. But yeah, it just felt like if you're going to do the witch that well, do you have another character like that ready? <laughs> Apparently no. Or <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Hard agree on that one. Okay. We don't always line up perfectly on the lost pages, but yes, that is, we do line up perfectly on that one. Alrighty then, Amanda, we have come to our final segment. Let's end as we always do with a little bit of critical assistance. This is when we look outside of ourselves for some help on interpreting this book. We either do some searching online or what have you for some criticism, maybe a book review, um, an article discussing the work, something like that. Do you want me to start first? Because we've got a, a bit of a returning guest on this segment today. Yeah, <laughs> At it. least, well, indirectly returning. We've never used King, Stephen King's um, nonfiction criticism before, I don't think. Have we? <laughs> I don't think we have, no. No, I don't think so. He's not well known for it, that's for sure. He's definitely well known <laughs> for his fiction. They included in my edition of this book, it's kind of an anniversary version. Do you have it too? The one that has all the... I do, yeah. Yeah, it's, I think it's the popular one sold today or the kind of common... Public, commonly published version. Anyway, it's a version that includes a bunch of criticism in the back. Um, a couple authors reflect on the influence of Bradbury or this book and what they liked or didn't. So this is from King Stephen King's Dance Macabre, which is, a, I think, his nonfiction collection. Anyway, I'll read a couple of quotes here. You know, some select King-isms that he's got to offer us here, some morsels. One second. I'm just pulling the first... That's not right at all. This is all going to get cut. (laughs) I'll leave it in. Anyway, okay. 
So this is from his first page of criticism about it. He says, um, There's something wicked this way comes. A darkly poetic tale set in the half-real, half-mythical community of Greentown, Illinois, is probably Bradbury's best work, a shadowy descendant from that tradition that has brought us stories about Paul Bunyan and his blue ox, Babe, Pecos Bill, and Davy Crockett. It is not a perfect book. At times, Bradbury lapses into the purple overwriting that has characterized too much of his work in the 70s. Some passages are self-imitative and embarrassingly fulsome, but... Uh, sorry, but that is a small part of the total work. In most cases, Bradbury carries the story off with guts and beauty and panache. So, a few things to unpack in this. The There's two really two things to me. There's the obvious criticism about the style, which we'll get to. What do you think about the kind of the American mythologizing about it, the putting it in that tradition, because it's it does kind of fit in an odd way. It's a weird slice of 1950s suburban life or not so small town life in a way. Yeah, I had not thought of it in that way, but it does make sense to me, especially with our discussions about archetypes and everything else that Mm -hmm. I think does kind of push it into that that category in some ways king really brings in this um couple in these couple pages of criticism brings that lens to it too which i thought was pretty instructive helpful for me to think about it in the americana sense and sort of what american mythologies is promoting it it has a couple Mm -hmm. obvious ones which is the stability of the two-parent home you know the like grow up in a small town kid know your neighbors you know be friendly with those and and it's also has that adventurous kind of you know, if you grew up in a small town, be adventurous and be free, like that American freedom ideal of like wander around and explore. And I don't know, I feel like you don't get that as much in a city um, set yeah. uh, setting. Um, thoughts on his, his summary of the style? He described it as what is it? Purple something? Yeah, I think it's, it's funny. He says it a couple times, and I came across it. I think purple would be what we say is flowery. I think that that has just changed. There's been a changing of the guard with the quick adjective that means a little written a little too much or too hard. Where <laughs> it's like you probably used too many words and, and went too far into it. And I think I think of flowery when I hear that. But I guess flowery also has implications of tone and sort of the selection of certain yeah, like images and ideas too. But yeah, I think purple just means like he's he overwrote it. It's a self-imitating, embarrassingly fulsome. So. I don't know. I, I don't agree with that. I don't think I. The only part of his writing that I was just kind of like, okay, was was the monologuing, um, but the the metaphors and the descriptions and the way that he's able to create mood and describe setting, I found all of that satisfying. Yeah, and it's here's my word on it. Does it all? Is it all essential by the end? No, but I don't envy the editor that would have to say which parts to cut. I mean, I'm sure I'd come yeah. up with some ideas if I was forced to, if it was my job, but also it's sort of like, well, it does come together as a whole and it really creates something that much. I, I think pretty confident. I feel pretty confident in saying so. Mm. Yeah. It felt like too cheap, a quick, I would say something too, in my opening paragraph of criticism of this book about the intensive, extremely, invasive style of it but i don't think it would be that you know it's i don't know i understand the negative reaction but i think mine would be yeah would be a little different than his 
a few yeah, other quick... I like that kind of language. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I and I like when authors are indulgent. I'd rather them take the chance than not. Um, mm-hmm. I think sometimes if you push, if you pull back too far, it can come across as, you know, you're not doing much. So I, right. I admire and I'll openly say my proclivity is for the effort, you know. <laughs> Put right. it on the page and I'll try and sort through it, right? So... Maybe this is where I got the word carnal from. A few more quotes from Stephen King. Bradbury is writing here of carnal enticements, not just sexual carnality, but carnality in its broadest forms and manifestations. The pleasures of the flesh run as wild as the tattooed illustrations which cover the dark man's body. The the book asks us to recall and re-examine the facts and myths of our own childhoods, most specifically our small-town American childhoods. Written in a semi-poetic style that seems to suit such concerns perfectly, Bradbury examines these childhood concerns and comes to the conclusion that only children are equipped to deal with childhoods, myths, and terrors, and exhalations. In his mid-50s story, The Playground, and then he goes on to talk about that, um, thoughts on a couple of those things, I think. The childhood triumph, I don't, the climax happened, didn't it? <laughs> Where right. the father say, I, that just feels like, I, I mean, his article here is more detailed, and I don't want to do it injustice by you know misquoting or out of context but that does feel like a misread to me i don't i wonder how i would in conversation with him or a person who read it that way i wonder what we would come to because it's like sure they're there and they inspire the father but he is he ends the evil and without him they would too be enthralled (laughs) right and the and the final thing that kills him yes is laughter but it's not laughter of innocence is laughter of acceptance and seeing yeah yeah what the world really is which is the opposite of innocence yeah and he and he comes to it so clearly in the moment with the witch on his life lived terms he you know and that he wouldn't have run back the clock it's sort of like he embraced that he had his wild troublesome years his carnal years and that he now has reached some other plane of understanding and so right. I I like the quote there, the carnality, I think I must have, it, honestly, I bet he put that on D in my head because I hadn't thought of that word before and then I said it today and I wonder if that was, you know, he supplanted or planted in my mind. But the small town thing is such a clear motif. He also calls it, um, it's one of the ideas of the new American Gothic. And so, and they talked about how Will and Jim are essentially living a comfortable life and yada, yada. But I, I do like his thoughts on the small town aspect. It, it only jumped out to me a little bit in some of the simpler senses, but reading it in that context feels right. I just hadn't um, thought through it that way completely. Yeah. I hadn't either. Yeah. It, it is, I think, a good, interesting reading of the book for sure. Final quote I'll pull from, from King, though this is, you know, it's a pretty substantial review slash analysis he goes through i think the whole story so final quote final paragraph this isn't to say that bradbury doesn't make a romantic myth of childhood because he sure does childhood itself is a myth for almost all of us we think we remember what happened to us when we were kids but we don't the reason is simple we were crazy then looking back into this well of sanity as adults who are if not totally insane that at least neurotics instead of out of out and psycho <laughs> psychotic we attempt to make sense of things which made no sense read importance into things which had none or had no importance and remember motivations which simply didn't exist this is where the process of myth making begins final line is really enticing that you have to build myths 
out of these moments of total kind of disconnection or, or non-development or something. It's, I don't know. It's kind of its own topic. I don't even know if we want to crack it. What do you think about his reading of this as, um, as sort of wild indulgence of childhood or something along those lines? That's an interesting theory. I, and it makes sense that King would be the one to, to make that point because I've, the whole time that you've been reading this um, criticism, it's been reminding me of his story, The Body. Or, yeah, you know, yeah. If, if you've seen the movie, The um, uh, Stand, Stand By, by Me. Whatever it is, yeah. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> a, a lot of his short stories, heck, even like his novels, are set in fictionalized main small towns with these all-American boys and it's very much his typical setting so i'm not surprised that he has a lot of good thoughts on on that so the odd juxtaposition there for me maybe i'd have to reread his paragraph again is this idea of myth making being something born of nonsensical reactions which ugh, there's a lot to say about that one one thing might be that people made myths before modern science so there's that contradictory thing of like well it's all belief system. It's all cultural. Maybe sense is just a word is a flexible word there. But I guess what I would say is like, do you think this is a book that at its core looks at the world and says, I can't make sense of this because that I don't agree with. I think it with its symbols and archetypes and characters that do certain things and the conclusion of its plot, like I think it does come together to make and I think you and I made the case throughout our episodes, maybe a little too much sense to me. <laughs> That's the part where it's like, I get that myths have that origin of sort of, I don't know, ambiguity or there's a core humanity to them that can be hard to track. But I just, mm-hmm. I didn't finish this book thinking this was born out of a, it definitely has that child curiosity, believability. You know, how many times do Jim and Will in the story have to turn to each other and say, like, is that real? We got to we gotta do something. We got to, you know, let's go check that out. And they're just, they're off, right? It's I like right. them as sort of motivating the story along or pushing it along. Um, and they make a great contrast for the adults in the story, too. And so it, I like all that reading, but it's something about the phrasing of that, that it's born of... I don't think I wonder if this book has that view of childhood and if it does I could see the reading minus the ending which I think has its own agenda or something has like its own purpose you know mm-hmm. so it's or you know of course one could read the whole book and just say it was the children who had to push the father to see to reignite his vision or to you know to get his imagination and analytics to line up or however you want to phrase it so yeah. any other thoughts on that quote a lot to to think about like his perspective is interesting but i would have to i mean it would completely change the re- the way that i read this book and yeah he also to... he does some analysis of charles howley too he calls him the myth of the dream father at some point that he's kind of like a dream father and that he's it's almost like the archetype you read into but in and he phrases it differently kind of through the small town american father lens it's yeah he's got plenty of interesting ideas in there it's like any hmm. I'm not going to say it's transcendent criticism or something, but it's like any good criticism, which is I nodded, I shook my head, and 
it was mostly pretty lucid. <laughs> so, yeah, I thought it was like a pretty solid, interesting read. I feel like I always react that way to King. I expect him to be something else, and I leave it thinking like, this was solid. <laughs> it's not, you know, it didn't blow my mind, and it didn't blow my hair back, but I was like, yeah, this is like, yeah, okay, cool. <laughs> he was, yeah. you know, you were a literary undergrad once. Like, I'm vibing. It's, I understand. I see what you're going for. <laughs> Any other thoughts on those quotes? Uh, no. All right, and on to your critical assistance then, Amanda. What are you presenting us with? Um, I also chose a piece from the back of the book. Um, sure. Mine was by Ted. I believe is pronounced Joya, but it's spelled G-I-O-I-A. Got it. Um, sorry if I completely butchered that. And that's from his work, Conceptual Fiction. And I, I, I was really interested in this too because it was saying um, in the little blurb about him beforehand that he's actually a music historian. Um, so cool. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Cross-disciplinary. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so I pulled uh, three different things uh, from his discussion of the book. So on page 324 um, it says here, Certainly Bradbury tries to amplify the horror as best he can, which revolves around a sinister carnival coming to town, but his temperament is not suited for dark themes. The supposedly spine-tingling scenes are among the most perfunctory in the book. Meanwhile, the author really hits his stride when waxing nostalgically over issues of youth and aging, life in middle America, and other familiar Bradbury themes. Two-thirds of the way through the novel, the reader is rewarded with a long monologue on the metaphysics of good and evil delivered by a janitor at the local library, and this interlude is thought-provoking and powerful, but has taken us so far away from the the conventions of the horror story that we wonder whether Bradbury will ever find his way back. So I thought that was interesting uh, for several Mm -hmm. reasons. Um, He says that... Bradbury tries to make this like horror story, but that he ultimately kind of fails in a lot of ways. Now with horror stories for me, a horror story is often based on the, the mood that is created. And I think that Bradbury did a really great job with making this a really creepy feeling book. Um, So I don't think that he failed in that respect. Yes. There are some, the archetypes and other things that we've talked about kind mm-hmm. of pull it away from being like overly horror story-esque. But yeah. if you think about um, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, right? Which is like the first science fiction. It was also a horror novel. And the the creepiness and everything definitely came through with that but there was also a lot of discussion of like these bigger idea themes of good versus evil of, right. of the idea of um vanity and of um so many other themes right so many other capital l literary themes that i think bradbury also does with this through archetypes and, and other means yeah so i don't I don't agree necessarily with him that, that he fails to make this a horror book. Um, I think that he has the, the foundations for a horror novel. It's in, difficult. In yeah. When you, and I, I think we unpacked it so well that that moment, the, we both called it a low, <laughs> you know? So it's, I don't yeah. think we need to analyze that scene too much more, but it sounds like this author responded or the critic a little positively to it and just thought it maybe de- derailed the 
you know, the goal of the piece of writing in front, you know what I mean? It's just a little too off. But I think, I don't know, it had enough of a voice to not bug me, but it was so clear what was happening at the same yeah. time. That's And that can be bothersome, I think, in, in some senses. Yeah. But yeah, okay. Um, another quote, hit us with something. Yeah. Uh, so I also pulled one from page um, 326. And um, this is just a quick um, quick piece of what he was talking about as far as like the horror setting and stuff. We have an electric chair, a predatory, uh, predatory, sorry, hot air balloon and a guillotine and other instruments of horror. Bradbury is especially skilled at employing these elements as objective correlatives in creating an atmosphere of dread and suspense. So I definitely agreed with this where, yeah, he does a great job with the mood. Um, and, and, even just like describing some of the settings, some of the things that are around and the way that he describes them is enough to, to make you feel like creeped out by what's happening. Definitely. Definitely. And it's a good use of, I, I mean, I guess we're a little out of time for it to be called familiar, but a, a carnival, an attraction like that is familiar enough to be exploited. You know, it's a pretty classic idea. Yeah. Go ahead. Other quotes. Um, And then I'll just read the final bit um, that he wrote. Yet above all, this is a beautifully written book, perhaps the most poetic horror novel of its time. Not a single page comes across as perfunctory. And even when the plot is moving at its fastest pace, the author measures every phrase and luxuriates in his imagery and asides. In fact, Bradbury runs the risk of undercutting the scary elements by presenting them in such majestic sentences. In the final analysis, he transforms this novel into a coming-of-age story in which the darker elements are again and again pushed to the periphery. Yes, you will find more terrifying tales than Something Wicked This Way Comes, but few that turn the ingredients of the horror genre into something quite so exquisite. Did you no, write that? No, that was really nicely put. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, so you wrote that? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> it's, I mean, I 100% agree with that. It's just it is beautifully written and I, I love the way that he writes. And I, I totally agree with him that this is something worth reading just based on style. <laughs> yeah. And then it's kind of the, what's the common cliched expression these days, the tech thing. I think it's, it's when it's like, it's a, it's a feature, not a bug. You know, it's the idea yeah. that something has intentionality to it and such purpose behind it, a, an aspect of it that if you bristle at it or don't like it or whatever, it's like, well, that was the point. So right. <laughs> it's right. like, that's not, don't try and correct something that was intentioned, you know? And so I think right. that that's part of it too. It's I, King's criticisms in that sense are simple and kind of dismissive. He's, He's definitely interested in aspects to it, but is perhaps doesn't want to get into the indulgences as much. Then again, on the whole, and it would be difficult to just recount all the discussion we've had and reopen a lot of those topics, but it does feel like that's it's kind of critical to setting up a lot of the, you know, as to put it, carnal archetypal things that he wants to talk about. Right. So, yeah, feature not a bug, as it were. <laughs> Any other final quotes except for the one that you just plagiarized and what's the opposite of plagiarism <laughs> where you say it's somebody else's but it was yours pen named that you wrote under a pen name? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Any other pen name quotes that you want to throw out there? 
<laughs> nope, that was it. <laughs> no, yeah, well said, well said, Amanda or whoever you were. <laughs> I closed the Google Doc. Okay, that is the collection of our thoughts on something that, uh, something wicked. This way comes by Ray Bradbury. Any other final thoughts before we close out the episode? Uh, nope, I'm good. No, what an intense read. Mixed in some yeah. ways, but that's how we like them. Some things to quibble mm-hmm. with, some things to really love and settle in on. It's, yeah, it's kind of a perfect blend in that sense. If you enjoyed our discussion, well, we appreciate it. Thank you, first of all. <laughs> and second of all, <laughs> we have other book picks coming up that you might be interested in. We always pick at least three, I think three to four books ahead. Depends on where you're following us. Yeah. Anyway, on the pod, we'll discuss three, definitely. Amanda, do you want to set up our next three book picks in order? Yep. Yeah. Uh, next is the nonfiction work uh, Ghetto Side by Jill Lavoie. Then we have a young adult novel, We Are Okay by Nina LaCour. And then we have a, another graphic novel, yeah. um, The Inkle, or Inkal, I N C A L, by Hodorowski and Mobius. Yes. And that's J O D O. So even though it's pronounced Hodorowski, it's with a J. Yeah. <laughs> the Inkal, it's a um, grand kind of sci fi soap opera. It's like a space opera. <laughs> uh, very influential, nice. though. It's one of those things that you read it. I've not read the whole thing, by the way. I try and pick fresh picks for this. But I. it's one of those things you encounter it in some aspects of it. And you think like, oh, this is like X or this is like Y. And then you realize like this is 30 years older. So <laughs> those things are like this thing <laughs> is what actually should be said. <laughs> it's kind of one of those influences anyway. Um, so, yeah, we'll get into the ink on back to graphic novels. That, that I thought we both enjoyed that, so let's get oh, back yeah, to one. Excellent. Okay. Well, as always, listeners, we thank you for listening. We are the Lightly Literary Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us there. Any likes and reviews you can give us on a podcast platform, that always helps. Get a get the word out there. Get people listening. Thanks again for listening yourself. And until next time, we'll see you between the pages. <laughs>